Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello and welcome to the Letter from Ireland show. Series 4, Episode 1. Yes, we're very excited to be bringing you a brand new series of The Letter from Ireland show. And in the show, we love to share with you our visits to the places that link to your Irish ancestors and bring their stories to life. Before we start into today's show, remember you can see all the links we mention in the show notes at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 401. Up today, we are going to visit a place that we had a trip to, Mike and myself, because it certainly links to many of your Irish ancestors. Last March, Mike and myself did a trip along the Irish Ancestry Trail, and we went to the beautiful island of Tasmania. That's off the south of Australia, and there we met up with some wonderful people and heard some great stories. In this episode, I'd like to share those stories and places and people that we met with you. Listeners, I'm sure some of you have links and some of your Irish ancestors may have been transported to Tasmania or as it was known previously, Van Diemen's Land. Perhaps you've wondered about the circumstances that forced your ancestors into this situation. Let's keep that question in mind from Mike Collins, who's going to drop into the studio there in a while and share his memories of the trip and maybe answer some questions for us. So join us now as we take a trip to Tasmania, a fascinating land and a very Irish part of the world on today's Letter from Ireland show. We take a look at what happened to our ancestors when they arrived in Van Diemen's land. Mike and I will visit Hobart, the Cascades Female Workhouse and Port Arthur. But first up, why don't we have a chat with a native Tasmanian? That's Doug Barrett, whose Irish ancestors moved from Sligo in the northwest of Ireland to Tasmania in the early 1800s. Now picture Tasmania as we chat. It was a bright sunny day and there I was talking with Doug and behind us we were overlooking the Tamar River outside Launceston in northern Tasmania. We're standing on the old farmyard, farmland, where Doug's great-grandfather James Barrett from Sligo first farmed. And sure, why don't I let Doug tell you about his enterprising Barrett family and how they fared when they arrived in Tasmania. We're here on the Irish Australian Ancestry Trail and today we're meeting Doug Barrett. And Doug, you've driven us out from Launceston in Tasmania uh, to this wonderful farm here. So can you tell us why you brought us to this farm? Well, this is the... Uh the place where my great-grandfather settled on the eastern side of the Tamar River in uh, in the 1830s and uh, they came out from, there two brothers came out from Ireland. Where in Ireland did they come from? Uh, Sligo. And what did they do when they were in Ireland? What was their well, work that's there? A, that's a bit of a mystery at the moment. We're not really certain. Um, there's rumours that they work for the uh, the Sligo Harbour Trust, and uh, there's uh, 
uh, also rumours that they were in the uh, Sligo militia. Uh-huh. Um, but nothing's been proven yet. So James Paris came out here and William and James settled on this land here. He settled on this land and... Uh, How big it, a farm was that at the time? It's it, uh, a thousand acres. Wow, okay. And uh, he uh, slowly cleared it by hand, he had a contract with the government to supply firewood and uh, unfortunately uh, things got bad for him and he, and he ended up dying of cancer. So what did he, do? was there other things he got up to while he was here? Well he was uh, involved in the, uh, uh, the liberation of uh, escaped Irish uh, political prisoners. And that was? Uh, Thomas Maher okay. and um, John Mitchell, and uh, that, that's, that's only two that, that uh, there's books written about uh, both of those two convicts. And, and you were saying earlier to us that he, he rode them up to the... He, he rode them uh, from up the Tamer, uh, right down and out to uh, Waterhouse Island, which is... Uh, uh, about 20 miles off the mouth oh. of the Tamer River. So it was a fair fair journey, and most of it was done by... Uh, Hand? Was it rowing? Just by, row, by rowing. rowboat? It was done in the middle of the night. Oh my goodness, so he navigated the river in the middle of the night and got the people out to that island where the boats then took them to America, I think, is it yes, you were saying? Yes, they uh, uh, stayed, some of them had to stay there for 10 days or a fortnight until a boat came past to uh, pick them up. Wow, I see. And he himself uh, then got ill, I think you were saying, when he, was, he, he wasn't that old. And he, he died from cancer? He, he died from cancer and uh, then the family uh, had to move off this property. And this wonderful property they had to let, let go. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, they moved over to the, the Furno Group. Uh, the, uh, the government offered cheap land. Uh, and the, the Furno the, Group is a group of islands, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. It's, uh, Flinders Island is the largest island. Uh, there's 52 islands in the group, and uh, the, uh, the French were snooping around, and uh, the government uh, wanted all the islands uh, uh, habitated. Populated, yeah. And, uh, so that uh, the French would be uh, warned off. Uh -huh. and, uh, so his wife and, and, and son moved onto, that, onto one of those islands onto then? Onto one of the island, Long Island and uh, established the uh, the first shop and post office in the Furno Group. Oh, enterprising people, so. Uh, and as, as well as uh, he had a, a trading catch which he uh, operated from the Furno Group to Launceston. This was his son, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. supplies. Very good. And you discovered something recently, um, that there was a grave there. Yes, there's... Um, uh, a grave on Waterhouse Island that, that belongs to uh, James Barrett, my great-grandfather. Yeah. I've been searching for that grave for, for years and I stumbled across it by chance only last week. 
And you yourself live now, or lived out on those islands as well? I, I lived there until um, uh, last year, this time last year, and I moved to La Trobe in Tassie. But you plan to go back on, on the island uh, again? Yes, yes, next month. So keep keeping the Barrett spirit alive in the islands? <laughs> yes, yes, well, uh, um, I don't know how long for this time, but uh, uh, we're going back next month and... See how it goes. And I know earlier today we were looking along the tree line there to see if we could find the remains of the old house. But you say it's it's somewhere there. We ha we didn't actually manage to find it, but it's right. It's somewhere there down behind us. It's very overgrown. Yes. And uh, we can see uh, a couple of pine trees there if we look. And you said this was your first time back on this, this land. This, this is the first time I've been on this land. And what does that feel like for you? Uh, it's too long ago to, uh, to, if there had been a house or something there that we could have seen, it would have been different, I think. You would have felt connected yeah. to it, yeah, yeah. Listen, Doug, thanks very much for bringing us here, and I know we're going to travel a little bit along further on the Tamar River and see some more interesting places. Okay, thank you. I really appreciated standing there looking over the Tamar River and talking to Doug. I was an Irish girl standing there and I felt that it was so different from Ireland. Just what his great grandparents, I'm sure, must have felt. Doug is a native now and doesn't realize it, but everything about the place felt different to me. The land, the smell, the sounds, the heat, um, and just it was just all so different there and it was wonderful. Now, the other wonderful thing that happened was that Doug rang us the next day to say that he had located the old farmhouse from a drawing given to him by a local and that we had actually been very close to where his great grandparents had their house on the previous day. Now, we had searched up and down, I can tell you. So that was great news. So a great find for Doug. Now, Doug's family had travelled freely, you know, to Tasmania to begin a new life, but others, we are reminded, are not so fortunate. And Maggie, I'd like to share with you, she's a reader on the letter from Ireland, sent us the following note. She said, Heffernan is my married name, and our first Heffernan in Australia was William. He was sent out to Australia for seven years for committing perjury in 1848. He was, they called, an exile, which she said is a more politically correct term for a convict. Now, Maggie is just one of 2.1 million Australian citizens who identified themselves as being of Irish ancestry in the 2011 census. And when I hear from our Australian readers, there's often at least one story of transportation to a penal colony in their ancestry. Maybe this is a good time to invite Mike Collins in to chat with us. Mike, thanks for popping in. It's great to have you with us on the show. You're welcome. I know you're busy writing the letter from Ireland each week and that I believe you're also putting together a magazine for the Green Room members, their family and friends. Oh, yes. How, yeah. how about the listeners? Any chance that they may get to see that magazine? Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's called, guess what we call it? A Letter from Ireland magazine. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Top marks. And uh, in fact, the uh, Christmas edition is actually just brought out and um, we have a new one coming out uh, as we actually publish in this podcast in January of 2019. So yeah, um, what we'll do is we'll put a link to both of them in the show notes. How about that? Oh, thanks. That's wonderful. Now, Mike, what I'd like to ask you is 
you know, many times our listeners are wondering, why is it that their ancestors moved so far away from Ireland, actually to the other side of the world? Any ideas on why that happened? Um, hopefully I have. <laughs> so I'm joking, Korean. Of course, you know, the interesting bit is I think a lot of our readers are divided into two camps. Um, some of the readers actually, they know an awful lot about their Irish ancestry uh, through the local records, for example, in parts of Australia, New South Wales, uh, Tasmania and so on. And others, you know, they're kind of unsure about certain parts because the convict side, if you like, of their Irish ancestry just has come to the fore, or at least it could be discussed for the first time in quite recent memory. Okay. So um, I guess kind of I'll mention a few facts. I'd like to know maybe the historical context around why they would have moved. Okay. Well, let's just kind of bring it back to a very specific event. And you must remember that at this time, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, of Britain and Ireland, okay? So it's the same country, effectively. Yes. So at the end of the actual American War of Independence back in the late 1700s, Britain needed a new destination for the convicts that were selected for transportation because up to that point, they had essentially been sent to the colonies of, uh, I suppose, the eastern part, especially of what became the USA. Now, the colony of New South Wales, which has more or less just been discovered at about that point or taken on board, I should say, Uh, which includes much of modern Queensland, was selected as a good alternative. So legislation was actually put into place in 1786 that allowed Irish courts to choose transportation to New South Wales as a sentencing choice. Oh, I see. So we're going back to roughly about that point. Now, the first Irish convict ship left for New South Wales in April of 1791, And thereafter, between 1791 and 1853, more or less at the end of this particular phase of uh, convicts being shipped out, approximately 30,000 Irish people were transported to New South Wales that we know of. But uh, what I'd say to you as well, Crean, is remember that an awful lot of Irish people were actually transported out of England and Scotland as well. So, you know, there was an actual lot of extra kind of pieces in there as well that maybe aren't inside that 30,000. Now, the last ship to carry convicts left Kingstown near Dublin, that's now Dunleary, and arrived in Australia on the 30th of August in 1853. Any idea of the numbers that maybe went out to Australia at that time? Yeah, well, you know, um, there are other countries shipping people out to populate them as well. So, you know, it wasn't just Ireland that provided Australia with their convict labour over the time. I suppose roughly, as far as I remember, around about 150,000 to 160,000 convicts were transported from England, Scotland and Ireland combined. You know, and just kind of comment as well, much has been made of the seeming trivial offences that could get you into trouble in the Irish courts. And there seems to be some truth in this. In fact, I came across one observer noting that English law in Ireland seemed to be the most severe for minor crimes. And he said, yeah, he said, a man is vanished from Scotland for a great crime, from England for a small one, and from Ireland for hardly no crime at all. And maybe, Karina, just kind of put that into a little bit of context. In our investigations, we've also found that entire families actually got shipped over. And often it was because maybe kind of a 13-year-old son, for example, was caught stealing maybe a cloak or a handkerchief or something like that, something very small and trivial. 
And the rest of the family decided after his sentencing, well, you know, we're going to have to accompany him. So they went off and stole something as well. So that the whole family were then transported. There you go. There you go. And I suppose the point is the Irish were sent almost exclusively to New South Wales. And in fact, by 1837, about 30% of the New South Wales population was both Irish and Catholic. And, you know, the vast majority of these were convicts, you know, freed convicts or the children of freed convicts. And what happened to the convicts when they arrived, Mike? What was their story? Yeah, well, you know, I suppose they were sent there, obviously, kind of for crimes and misdemeanors, but they were sent there for good reason as well, because this was a new colony. And the flow of the convicts uh, provided a much-needed source of labour in a land without infrastructure or cultivation. Oh, so they, they when they got there, so they were part of the economy, really, weren't they? Absolutely, and yeah. a very necessary part. You know, I mean, it was hard labour, but it was hard labour with a purpose as well. Mm-hmm. So I suppose from the beginning of the transportation system, a convict arrived in New South Wales and was then assigned to usually a specific farm owner. And perhaps, however, the more dangerous prisoners were sent directly to work on road gangs. Now, seven years was the typical duration of a sentence. But of course, many didn't have the option of returning to their homeland at the end of the period. So really, seven years was a life sentence it for many. It was yeah. a life. And at that stage as well, let's face it, you know, it was probably an opportunity in their minds as well, you know, to kind of acquire something different from what was at home. Um, also, I suppose a system of probation was in place that allowed a man to be eligible for conditional freedom after four years for good behaviour. So you didn't have to do the full seven. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. So you, you could say that the typical men arriving in New South Wales, and I am emphasising men here, were from farm labouring backgrounds back in Ireland, and they rarely had a trade or a marketable skill. So on release, it was going to be, you know, through the hard work of farming that he established himself in his adopted country. So the trend emerged really, Karina, that the Irish convicts, once obtaining freedom, took up land grants all over New South Wales, Queensland, and the other newly established Australian states. You know, so it's 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 they they saw the place as being an opportunity at that point to use their skills they had, their knowledge from farming, farming but also skills. to get a land of their own, which they could not have access to back in Ireland. I imagine that must have been very attractive to a lot of people when they left Ireland, where land was being divided and divided into smaller and smaller plots. And then to be able to own your own land, that must have been a major That was plus. So, much, so much of a thing, Karina, yeah. And, you know, I mentioned there about kind of whole families going over and, you know, that that aspect of, I suppose, kind of a small version of chain migration. But, you know, a note on that, which I'll finish on, uh, our good friend Desdenine, who lives in Melbourne, Australia, points out that a large proportion of Irish migrants to Australia in the mid-1800s came from Tipperary and generally from a 40-mile radius of the Rock of Cashel. Wow, that's news to me. Very interesting. Yeah, and you know, that's that's a real sign of good news traveling home. It's a sign of opportunity. It's a sign of lots of things, but you tended to get that. And of course, the place names travel with them as well. Well, that kind of brings us full circle because I, I was speaking about Maggie Heffernan. You remember she wrote to us. That's right, yeah. Uh, and she was talking about her ancestor. So does it appear so that William Heffernan might have been one of those temporary residents? Absolutely, given the surname Heffernan from that particular area. So he, he would have been one of those forcibly removed people hundreds of years ago from his homeland and now surviving and thriving through Maggie and her family and they're proud to call that part of the world their home today. Absolutely. And if I could just say one thing as well, Karina, I mean, you know, I guess kind of you were aware of so many of the facts, perhaps Irish, Australian, um, 
Van Diemen's Land history. And, yes. and of course, we have the songs and everything. Oh, the Black Velvet Band uh, The Black comes Velvet to mind. Band, for example. But also, I, I guess kind of having travelled to Australia, it's just kind of put such a human element, meeting the ancestors, uh, sorry, the descendants of the various... Um, and Tasmania. Our and Tasmania, there, yes. absolutely. But meeting the descendants of these kind of convict families and so on, it's it's in and going to the places associated with them i mean to me that was the real education it was the real kind of sense of this thing really exists and did exist in the past and when you're there on the ground you really feel it absolutely fantastically all wonderful things that we do on the irish ancestry trail there you go well mike thanks and wouldn't it be nice now if we take the listeners maybe to one of those places where these people especially the male convicts were taken uh, i think we could go and have a visit there Thanks for popping in. Sounds great. And you're welcome. Learning so much about the prisoners and the convicts, I really wanted to see where they had been held. So while in Tasmania, Mike and myself visited one of the large prisons, the colony of Port Arthur. And this, of course, was a prison for male convicts only. Now, Port Arthur is surrounded mostly by sea with a tiny little narrow inlet of land. On the drive down to the prison, we passed this inlet of land and we stopped the car. And this is where the prisoners might have tried to escape by boat. But here we saw statues of these fierce dogs that were kept to guard the exit. So if by some miracle you'd made your escape journey by boat to this patch of land and you then were presented with these huge hungry guard dogs and you had them to contend with. So seeing the fierce dogs, that was the first inkling of foreboding we had. And we soon realized that Port Arthur was a place that very few prisoners would have escaped from. The Irish political prisoner, John Mitchell, that Doug Barrett's great-grandfather, James, you remember from the previous audio, had helped escape to America, was incarcerated here at Port Arthur. So we went to see the house where he was kept as a prisoner on the island. And I had just started to explore the island here and we'd listened to the guide and had a feel for what the place was like. And I'd like here for you to listen as I describe the prison as I saw it back then. I'm standing in front of the penitentiary in Port Arthur, um, just about an hour and a half outside Hobart here in Tasmania. And Mike and I have come down here to see what prisoner convict life was like in the 1830s. This was the singular biggest prison around at that time for male convicts and especially for secondary offenders. In other words, if you re-offended, you were sent here to Port Arthur and you worked on logging or whatever work that that they put you to at the time. You lived in chains, you slept in your chains, you ate in your chains. Um, The soldiers' lives here was not much better. I believe the guy told us that if you were a soldier up in Hobart, at least you got rum and women, as they said, but down here you didn't get any of that. It was a really difficult place to escape from, which is, of course, what would be in a prisoner's mind. The seas were supposedly shark infested, and then there was only, you were surrounded by sea on all sides, and there was just a narrow inlet to get away, and then that was either guarded by soldiers or really bull mastiff dogs, which we saw on our way down here as well, a replica of one of those. So today it's quiet and it's beautiful and um, really, really lovely setting. Uh, A lot of people here. Seems to be one of the most popular places to visit in Tasmania. And I'm glad we got a chance to see the place and we will walk around now and go on the harbour and have a look at the Isle of the Dead, which is just out there in the water and uh, pass by the boys prison. Young boys were sent out to the island just there as well beside us. 
To cheer us up after that visit to Port Arthur, we actually stopped in at a local lavender shop, sampled some lavender ice cream and the smell of lavender chocolate. Oh my goodness, it all did the trick and we were in much great, greater spirits as we headed back up to Hobart. We also marvelled at the achievements of the descendants of those hard-working convicts. The guide had told us that almost 80% of the Tasmanian population are descended from convicts and it is only of late that the people have developed a pride in their convict heritage, seeing it less as something shameful and more as a sign of strength, endurance and courage. Their ancestors had arrived here with less than nothing and survived. Not only had they survived, but they had thrived. And one memory that will always stay with me from Port Arthur was when I stepped into the chains that those people lived in day in, day out, and the weight of them on my feet, I could hardly move. Anyway, back to Hobart, and next morning we were up very early on the search of Irish sculptor Ronan Gillespie's statues. Now, these statues, we follow them quite a bit because on our travels on the Irish Ancestry Trail, we have seen them on the quays of Toronto and Dublin. And these are statues by Ronan depicting Irish emigrants. And so we headed down to the quayside in Hobart to see the statues of the emigrant women, which have now been immortalised in bronze. And these women are now regarded actually as the founding mothers of Tasmania. Hobart was a penal colony from 1804 to the 1850s. So the statues of three women and two children act as a reminder of the hardships experienced, particularly by the Irish convict women and children transported to Tasmania in those early 1800s. Ronan modelled the figures on living descendants of convict women and children living now in Tasmania, which I thought was wonderful. And these women... Unfortunately, the convicts had tran- were transported for petty crimes back in the day. And these crimes now we recognize were acts of destitute, starving people and not convicts. Have a listen here as I'm on the quayside in Hobart. This is the arrival point for the convicts. And I describe these powerful statues as each one has a story to tell. I'm standing here in front of Ronan Gillespie's monument footsteps in Hobart in Tasmania and this part of the island here would have been where the convicts would have first come in 1803 and 13,000 of them arrived between 1803 and 1853 onto this area here which was then called Hunter Island. Now Ronan through his depiction of the women has shown us what it was like for the women that arrived here the first woman that he shows in the statue is a young healthy woman she would have done best here in the colonies they would have been marched up to the Cascades female factory but if she was lucky she might have been put out for um, unpaid labour some mistress of a middle class house that picked her to do the constant work of cleaning um, minding children and feeding and the next woman though is a woman with worry and grief because she is an older woman and she would have done a little bit worse here in the colonies because just think if a household can get somebody for free a young girl why would they be her who was so much older the next lady and woman in the depicted in the statues is a woman with a baby in her arms 
Now, she might have been momentarily relieved to step out here onto Hunter Island into a new life in Van Diemen's land, but she would have soon realised that her baby would have to be taken from her, weaned at six months regardless, and she would have been sent off to work as well somewhere maybe never seeing her baby maybe she would have met somebody and he would have taken care of them then they would all have been you know together as a family again and the little boy at the back he depicts all the orphans that came out here now they also were in prison in a way and that they were put into the orphan school when they arrived two-thirds of those children never got out here to the colonies if you were a child of a convict you may never have got here but if you did get here like this little boy then your life was in the convict school until you were 10 12 and then you were sent off to work however maybe your mother would come back for you and you would have a family life here so it was very precarious life for all of the people that stepped off onto this island back in the 1800s isn't it hard to believe that from 1803 to 1853, almost 13,000 convict women together with 2,000 children arrived in Hobart onto the quayside, where we stood on that sunny day with lots of tourists milling about taking photographs. I really wanted to find out more about what happened to these convicts when the women, when they arrived in Hobart. And to follow in their footsteps, Mike and I headed out to where the female convicts were imprisoned at Hobart's historic Cascades Female Factory. Now, this site was just a few kilometres outside the town under the mountain. I was very unprepared for how emotional a visit this would prove to be and I found it hard at times to listen to the cruelty that the women had suffered here in the Cascades. This was a place where female convicts were incarcerated on arrival in Tasmania and life was not pretty for them. In the now empty yard after our guide had left us with our thoughts I tried to explain some of those feelings. I'm standing in the female Cascades factory, a factory really being a workhouse, a penitentiary prison for females in Hobart, just outside Hobart under Mount Wellington. And this location here for the factory was, uh, was originally a rum distillery and was bought by the government in 1826 uh, somewhere to house convicts, women convicts. So the women convicts were marched here in the middle of the night so as not to attract any attention from the locals or the sailors down at the port in Hobart. And they came here and spent uh, either as a first, second or third class prisoner their years here. They could be here for seven 14, 21 or life, depending on what their crime was. For a crime as little as stealing an egg, um, the guide told us there, there was a little girl picked up. She was 11 years and sent out here for stealing an egg. So it's been uh, almost traumatic really for us just even looking around the yards as they were called. And this is the women's clothes just behind me here, which would have been really heavy cotton. Their heads were shaved when they came here. They were put into these heavy cotton outfits and uh, marked with uh, C for convict. Um, and really it was very, very inhuman. And we're, we're here now on the final yard that we've been brought to, and this is the nursery. And as many as 70, 75% of the children died here. And of course they were never allowed here after the age of three and they were moved on to the orphanage. So it's, it's, it's quite shocking, but I suppose one hopeful thing about it was at the end, I, I remember reading that between one of five and one of seven Australians today are descended from these women 
we were, as our guide said, more sinned against than sinners. I wonder, listeners, did any of your ancestors arrive and spend time in Cascades? I do know that one of our Green Room members who wrote to us told us that her third great-grandmother, Anne, who was born Maguire, was one of these prisoners. Having arrived in December 1841 aboard the convict ship with four of her children, Anne, who was 13, Margaret, 11, Ellen, who turned out to be the second great-grandmother of our Green Room member, and then it was seven years, and then there was Patrick, who was nine years. So the children were sent to the Queen's Orphanage, and Anne was sent to the Cascades Female Factory. You remember, of course, that the children over three weren't allowed, so she would have lost all her children on arriving there. But Anne remarried a William Pickburn, or Pitman, in April 1844, and the children were returned to them. However, Anne did not receive her ticket of leave from the Lieutenant Governor until the 15th of July, 1848. And this was from the Hobart Town Gazette, Tuesday, July 18, 1848. And our Green Room member says she is unsure how long Anne spent in the female factory. While the women's cloaks and hats uh, on the line there stayed with me and another memory from the Cascades that will stay with me are the plaques that we noticed around and on the plaques were the women's names and Mary and Anan and where they were from their eye color and their hair color and if they had any distinguishing feature and their sentence and a little bit about their crime and their crime would have been maybe stealing an egg or a handkerchief or a cloak And these are the things I think that will stay with us. And another memory I think that will stay with us from Tasmania is the pride people now have in their history. Our guide at the Cascades had said that when he was a young fellow in school, he had done a project and discovered that actually his own uh, ancestry, that his great-great-grandmother had been in the female Cascades and nobody in the family had really spoken or known about it. And his teacher at school had told him, not to investigate it further. But this has all changed now. And this sense of pride the people have in their history is a growing one in Tasmania. And we were delighted to be there to see that resurgence. Uh, I'd like very much to thank all the people who welcomed us into their hearts and their homes and told us a little bit about times and life in Tasmania, and especially those people who have written to us and our members in the green room. And our journey comes to an end. We'd like very much to say thanks to the Green Room members and the readers on the letter and your listeners, of course, for your company on today's Letter from Ireland show. I hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, listeners, we love to hear from you. So if you have any ancestors that made that journey from their Irish homeland to Tasmania, we'd love to hear it. Feel free to share the stories with us and let your comments at a lettermireland.com forward slash 401. And we look forward to you joining us again next time on the Letter from Ireland show. I'm sure we'll get back to Tasmania and follow some more on the Irish ancestry trail. But for now, Slán, that's goodbye until we meet again. Slán Gafol, bye for now, Karina. Just before we go, Thanks again for listening. And if you have enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called The Green Room. 
You can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of The Letter from Ireland Show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán Karina.